At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Jake Marquez is a filmmaker, a documentary filmmaker about meat and the benefits of meat. The film is called Death in the Garden and they've been filming it for two years now, entering into the next year to 18 months to wrap it up in, from a post perspective. But the conversation that we have is absolutely fascinating because Jake used to be a vegan and now is a meat eater. He's a non-hunter as well, but he wants desperately to hunt. And he's building a documentary about the benefits of meat and really coming to grips with this idea of death tied to the food that we get. Fascinating. I know you're going to love it. Everything sound good on my end, audio and stuff? Yeah, audio sounds great. Perfect. All right, question number one. You were a vegan. Correct. Question number two, you are a meat eater now. Yes. Question number three, are you a hunter? Not yet. An I aspiring like, hunter, yeah. I like that answer. Number four, you're a documentary filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And five, a documentary filmmaker about the benefits of meat. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's a strange journey, huh? <laughs> Did I sum it up about correctly? Yeah, that's about it. That's a good uh, bullet point version of the story. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jake Marquez, uh, um, you are the second Jake Marquez that I have. How do you say your last name? Marquez? Uh, Marquez. Marquez. Yeah. You're the second person that I know that is a Jake Marquez. What? Where's the mm -hmm. other guy that you know? 
Uh, he was a PhD student in, and he did a PhD in fire ants ecology, social behavior of fire ants, at the University of Mississippi. Good friend of mine. Uh, we roomed together, so uh, I hold all Jake Marquez's in high esteem. That's amazing. I love that. I'm no PhD holder, so. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself, Jake. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So my name is Jake Marquez, and. Um, I'm a documentary filmmaker. I, me and my partner, uh, Marin Morgan, who is my kind of co-conspirator on our current project, Death in the Garden, have been making a film called Death in the Garden um, for the past almost two years now. It'll probably be at least three by the time we're done filming. We'll see. Um, but I've had a long journey over the past, I don't know, I'd say close to a decade um, regarding food, um, environmentalism, and our relationship to, you know, how we sustain ourselves and how they kind of all intersect. And so I kind of, you know, uh, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is a very suburban area. And, you know, like anybody who grows up in suburban America, you're, you're very, it's really easy to not understand what's real and to be disillusioned or, you know, not understand how, how things function and how things are yeah. provided for you. So, but I was, you know, I was a very kind of passionate and still am person growing up. And, you know, I, I wanted, I, I had kind of more misguided ideas on, on what to do with that passion and those intentions growing up. But as I kind of got into my twenties, I decided to kind of dedicate myself to really traveling and exploring and, and seeing how the world worked firsthand, you know, cause you can't really, I, I don't think you can really understand things unless you go out and you feel them and you experience them. 100%. 100%. Yeah. You know, there's that, oh, there's some line, I forget where it comes from, but it's like, you know, information is just a rumor until it's felt in the body, right? You gotta, Ooh, you gotta I like be that. there. I like yeah. that. Yeah. And I knew that. And I knew growing up in the burbs, you know, made me, I don't know. I, I, I just knew I had to go, go out there and see for myself. So, you know, my early twenties, I just kind of, started a trend of just traveling a lot. You know, I went out into the world and I traveled a lot and I just got as many experiences as I could. Um, did you traveling. go to university? I did, but I dropped out. Okay. No, no, <laughs> yeah. no, no. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 I did about a year and a half of university right out of high school and uh, I ended up getting, you know, really depressed and it just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't what I needed. You know, I wanted something real and tactile. So I ended up leaving uh, university and moving to New York City and then from New York City, I started traveling to Spain and then to Europe. And then I spent time in Australia and Thailand Austin. and all these places. Yeah. You know, and along that journey, you know, I started um, a uh, like a like a personal health journey. I was having some some really negative health um, things happening with my stomach and my skin and my mental health. And so I began just kind of experimenting with various dietary practices and then trying to, you know, intermix that with how I felt about environmentalism, you know, because as you kind of become an aware young person, there's so much going on with like Netflix documentaries right, and, all right, sorts of right. shit. and you hear all sorts of what's good for the planet, what's good for you, blah, 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 blah. And so through, you know, experimenting with uh, like paleo and more kind of like carb restricted diets, which was great for me. Um, I then, you know, kind of stumbled upon because of some friend groups that I had and some communities that I was getting involved in. I stumbled upon vegetarianism and veganism, mm -hmm. you know, and at the time for me, it was like, definitely like, I wouldn't say I was, I was never completely sold on it. Right. Cause for me, the idea 
not to put paleo on a pedestal or anything, but the basic concept of like, let's think about history. Let's think about generally what our ancestors ate, what their environment is, what was available to them. That really made sense to me. And so when I heard about vegetarian and veganism, like there was part of me that it didn't make sense on a logical level, but I was kind of getting interested in spirituality and I was yeah, doing a lot were, of meditation. You were getting into the doctrine, right? Of oh, that yeah. whole culture. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I'd love to dig into that part with you because that's what it really is. And that's what really grabs a lot of people ultimately. And so I, I decided, you know, I'll give this, it'll be an experiment. I'll give it a try. And so for around two years, I was mainly plant-based. I wouldn't say completely vegetarian, but by and large, very plant-based. And I felt all right. I felt good. I don't think I felt any big improvements in my health. Um, but I felt good. I felt light and it kind of reinforced what a lot of people I was around, you know, like my community was reinforced and it was positive and we were all amping each, up, uh, amping each other up about it, you know, and being like, wow, well, we're the ones who aren't killing animals. We're the ones right. who are, who are going to bring humanity to the next level. You know, we all watch Cowspiracy and what the health and all these shitty Netflix health documentaries. And it's just like this feedback loop and you feel so good about yourself. Mm-hmm. But then as I got kind of deeper into my uh, spiritual community or my spiritual path, um, you know, I, as I was traveling, uh, I ended up living at a Hare Krishna temple at a, a yoga retreat that they were, end, uh, that they were, uh, they were running, you know, because I was this? in Australia. Okay. So I was traveling the world being a little vegetarian vegan and I ended up as, like Did completely Did you have broke. a ponytail? What was that? Did you have a ponytail? No, I had long hair though, man. It was good. It was like down to my shoulders. So did I. When I came out of school in South Africa, I had long hair down to my shoulders too. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I, I miss it. I miss it. I'm trying to grow it back right now. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I was, I was traveling the world with very little money and I ended up in Australia with zero money. So it was like this thing where it was like, okay, I have zero money. What am I going to do? And I had a friend uh, mention that she knew of this place where you could go and volunteer and you could pitch up a tent. And if you volunteered in these gardens at this yoga retreat, you could pitch up your tent, live there for free and have like three free meals a day, right? Of all this food you grow. So, and it's all vegan. It's like very, very vegan. And so as like a, you know, little nomad vegan, I was like, this is perfect. And Nirvana. so, oh yeah, it's the perfect mix. Like all these cool, young, hippie, you know, people all living in this little community. We're growing our food. It's like the paradise that we all think we're going to create on earth. And so I spent about seven months at this retreat and there was a lot of amazing things that was happening. It was an incredible time in my life. I got to really do a lot of meditation and yoga. And so I don't want to poo poo on all that. It was, it was definitely a good aspect of my life, but you know, as six, seven months started to roll around and this was very strict vegan, you know, very, very dogmatic vegan, very much like meat eaters are the devil. They're the scourge of the earth. We're all going to grow our own food. And we did. And we grew a lot of really amazing food in uh, what's called syntropic gardening, which is a, a fashion of permaculture, you know, that I won't go into the details, but it was really cool. You know, like I got to mm, like yeah. plant all my food and then eat the food. Right. So we were right. doing everything right. It was like the cleanest, most pure food you can possibly imagine. But then, you know, seven months comes around and I'm feeling, I'm feeling like shit, you know, like I'm, I, it's, it's becoming very, very clear that it's like my body is failing, you know, like mm. my, di- my digestion is incredibly bad. My skin's getting really bad. The depression that I can go on and on and on. And I was just like, what is going on? I'm supposed to feel as like, this is supposed, supposed to be the best. To be the best of the best. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I'm supposed to be so elated. Um, and so, you know, I just kind of like one day, I don't know what it, uh, what, it, what it was, but I think because part of me held 
it as an experiment. There was that little part of me that always said like, just do the vegan veganism as an experiment, you know? And then one day it just like, well, I should preface too, is that I also started to look out with the other people in this community and I just started to observe everybody. I'm like, is everybody else feeling like shit or is it just me? And as I began to just look, you know, and I was surrounded by anywhere from 40 to 70 young people, right? Who are living in this retreat at any given time. And everybody's health health is failing, right? Like everybody's health is failing. I mean, there was this very pivotal uh, moment where we were all sitting around the campfire one night and, you know, everybody's kind of talking and like everybody was talking about having digestive problems. And then one thing that kind of cued me off was that a lot of the women in this community were saying that they had kind of all lost their period and were having like menstrual problems. And this is, oh. you know, I'm, I'm not trying to criticize in anybody's health, you know, sure. but it was just like this thing where it was like, we're all in our early twenties and we're all like suffering a lot of like really bad health. I'm like, this is not mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And so my brain just started to get going. And then, you know, one day it was just like, it might be the lack of animal products. It really might be like historically, I just think we had animal products in our diets. And so I snuck off the property uh, because it was so taboo to have even think about eating animal products. So I snuck off and I went to the, like the local grocery store and bought some KFO rotisserie chicken for like five bucks. Cause it was like all the money I had. And I was like, all right, listen, I'm just going to try this. I'll pray away the sin. If I don't feel good afterwards, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, I sat under a tree and ate a rotisserie chicken and all of a sudden my brain came back online. My body came back online and just, it was this immediate, immediate response of like, oh shit, like this is good. Like I feel so much better. This is an undeniable truth, at least about myself that I've discovered, you know, that I've come upon. Like this is undeniable. There's no going back from this experience. But at the same time, and I think this is a lot of, of the, of the struggles that vegans go through when their health fails is because then you then have to begin reconciling a lot of things. If that is the truth of, you know, your spirituality, your community, mm -hmm. uh, your relationship to the environment and mm -hmm. ultimately the fact that everything that you've been like mind driven into right now, it's coming into question. Exactly. And then the big one and the one that's hard to this day, not hard, but still is the most enriching aspect was the death part. Like, Oh, wow. Like things die for me to live. And then, so I had like this experience of being this animal. And then as I began to work in the gardens again, I was like, but who are we kidding? Like things are dying every day just for our kale. Like we're killing slugs. We're killing bugs. We're killing bacteria. The kale can probably feel and isn't somewhat sentient. Like so much of life is sentient. You know, all the new research that's coming out shows the whole plant world is highly communicative and interconnected mm -hmm. and has some sort of awareness. And so it was like, I, and, and, and so that aspect of like, wow, like death, wow, what an incredible truth of the universe that I've stumbled upon that is inescapable. And so after that, just, just recognizing that all these things that I was trying was ultimately just trying to avoid death and, and, wow. and it was trying to avoid this like fundamental reality of the universe. And then I saw in so many of my peers, like this desperate desire to escape to escape mm. that fact, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very human thing. Well, isn't it's, that what society today is? It's, it's just this, this thing of death, right? We're just getting so sanitized away from this thing called death. Even oh, in yeah. the human structure, in the human community structure, where you used to have, you know, your parents come live with you. They don't oh, live yeah. with you anymore. They live in these beautiful old age homes that they just go away to, you know, finish out their lives. Instead of exactly. the European community where you've got multiple generations in the family home experiencing that. 
Exactly, exactly. I think we interviewed this fantastic guy named Sheldon Solomon, who wrote a book called The Worm at the Core, which is all about, you know, death phobia and our, he calls us homo mortalis, or the species that knows we're going to die. And it, and it really has, if you look at civilization, Whoa, that's powerful, right? The only species that knows they're going to die. Yeah, I think there are some other species that have some sort of awareness of death, but the, it's like a this overarching, you know. No way. There's doomy, no way. Gloomy. You don't There's think no, so? No way. There's no species <laughs> out there that gets into their adult lives and realizes that there is a finality to where we're going. Mm, yeah. Do you think? I'd love to ask this for you. Have you seen? Are you aware of any animals that at least have like a? like a grieving process when a member is lost. Do like any animals like bury or like, like do anything like that? Do you know of? So the only thing that I know of is the idea of an elephant boneyard, elephant graveyard. Okay. Mm. That there's something about elephants when they come across a skeleton of another elephant, that they almost are tactile in figuring it out. Now, here's the crux of the matter when it comes to any animal Okay, this is the way that I couch things, is that we'll never know. We're making an anthropomorphic assertion on a visual event that we're seeing based on the way that we typically represent that type of emotion, anger, sorrow, reverence, some sort of mourning type activity. And so we're, we're, we're anthropomorphizing what we're seeing. Whether that is true or not, I have no idea. Nobody knows. Okay? Nobody knows because nobody's ever going to be inside of an elephant and can, and can physically understand that that animal is saying and thinking the way that we're saying that it's thinking and acting. Now, Absolutely. The other part to the whole killing thing is that do animals feel pain? And based on neurology and based on science, the firing of a pain receptor occurs just like it does in the human body. But again, is the reaction that is elicited as a result of the pain receptor being activated in humans the same reaction, emotion, consequence in an animal? Because we've seen animals with half their body torn because of a lion attack, doesn't look like it's in pain, like we would as a human be in pain. Mm. Again, we will never know. And so you cannot argue one way or another, yes or no. All you can state is what I've just stated logically. Here is my interpretation of that. And a vegan could interpret it exactly the opposite. And, I'd have to, and I have to accept it. Because their interpretation is no more valid or no less valid. It's not less valid than my interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I think the anthropomorph, anthropomorph, oh, I can't say that word, anthropomorphization of the rest of the living world is a very dangerous and, and slippery slope, right? Uh, right. Their, their experience of what it means to be alive and to be a member of whatever community they're part of is so incredibly different and leagues away from what we can imagine it is just as far away as we are from them. And I think that's what been one of the biggest learning lessons for us is that there's a different type of awareness and, and, 
I guess you can call it consciousness within various animals. You know, we've so far we've witnessed a handful of um, animal deaths, we'll say, through whether it's ranching or shepherds or whatever it is. And being in the experience of that and watching an animal die and then watching to whatever capacity that they do, the rest of the community members of, of the herd or whatever come in and acknowledge that death is a really interesting experience that again, can't be understood unless you're there to see it. You know what I mean? Like we were so just, you've experienced that. Yeah. So we've, we've witnessed two big moments like this. It hasn't been hunting. So what we were, as we were death at, in the garden, this is tied in with death in the garden. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I guess I'll preface this is with death in the garden you know, we're, we're covering a lot of things with this documentary, but ultimately we're trying to get to the core of that experience of like trying to understand the death required for our own sustenance. Right. And, and being able to come to terms with that, mm -hmm. um, as people who, who don't have a background in that. And so we've witnessed a handful of really, really meaningful experiences. The first one we did was in Texas with this bison herd that was being, uh, holistically managed and, and rotationally grazed and all these really cool practices is we watched a bison be field harvested. And, and, and to be there with this big, beautiful, magnificent animal as it, as it died and was bled out and, and butchered in the field, you know, surrounded by all these other massive, big monster animals who, if were angry at us, could have really just killed all of us, right? And then sure. we recently came back from Sweden where we spent time with um, shepherds who have a, a, a sheep, right? And so we watched them harvest a few of their sheep in in the field, right? And, and these are people who really care about their animals and spend all their waking hours just caring about them and worrying about them and figuring out if they're sick, if they're hurt. And then to also watch them take one of their lives and, and, and be part of that experience and help the butchering process to really see that kind of death really connects you, I think, with the living world in a way that it's really hard to get anywhere else. You know, and, but it, it, I think what I'm getting to is that we had to, it was a good learning lesson for us to not anthropomorphize what the animals were going through, what their experiences were like, what it meant. You know, it was like the natural world is operating on so many terms and functions and mm -hmm. algorithms that we can't see and understand. And we need to trust those processes that have been going as the the the, the why we're here. Don't you think that those algorithms in nature are super simplistic? Oh yeah, super primal, right? It's Mother Nature. Look, she's a bitch, right? She's violent. She's cruel. But even those things, violence and cruelty, the the the, the human emotion tied to those two terms is not what you know nature is. It's just. It is what it is, right? That's as simple as it is. It's it's life and death. Life begets life. Life begets death. And it's a cycle. And there is boom and bust to Mother Nature. You know, there's... there's to me, it, it, and maybe that's the whole, you know... I don't know. I, again, I don't want to surmise what the, the, the premises of death in the garden, but death, life begets life sustenance are all just so simplistic but in the world that we live in today that everything is just everything is algorithms everything is so complex oh yeah we've we've over we add too much complexity things and and this is one of the takeaways for me is that like you know the more we avoid 
death and these simple processes. And the more we try to like co- uh, dominate and command and break up these simple processes, the more destruction and pain we do cause. And I think the closer we get to like what's real and what's true, which is something is going to die for me to live no matter what, that there are consequences for my life. The true, we can make that, we can make those processes more efficient and more clean. And we, we can find so much meaning out of it, right? Because we've never been able to escape those things. And the closer we get to them, I think the better we can make life on earth, you know, and that Mm -hmm. might sound very counterintuitive to people because we want to get away from the natural world. We want to hide ourselves from it. You know, the great, the great promise of civilization is that, you know, science and technology will be the great saviors and they will, you know, the great promise of science is that it's going to control the natural world to so much degree that death will be avoided at all costs, which is the lie of all lies, you know, like, I mean, even just think about a black hole consuming a galaxy or, or a star absorbing another star. It's just, it's this fundamental thing that is going to happen. And, right. and the more we try to like offset, I guess you can call it entropy. The more I, I feel like chaos we're creating, there's, there really is an order to it, you know? So let me ask this question. And I think a lot of people may be interested in this. You said you've been, you've been filming death in the garden for two years. Full time for two years, just about with a few a few little hiatuses. Um, but we have uh, my partner and I. We have a van that we drive around the country. That's been like it's like a nice little camper van uh, that we drive around as a little mobile studio. So we've been spending a lot of time driving around the country, uh, just vi- just finding any interesting story or experience we can. And then recently we've been able to go overseas with the loosening of COVID and go find some overseas um, stories about agriculture, about food, about hunting, about all these interesting nuances to people's relationship um, with food and, and sustenance. You know. So in these two years, you've never been offered the opportunity to hunt? Oh, we have. We have twice. I've been offered two opportunities, but they both fell through. Um, they just, you know, I made a mistake once on buying uh, the wrong deer tag in Montana. Oh, man. Oh, it broke my heart, man. I was devastated for like a month. And then I had a friend that I was going to go with um, in uh, Colorado, but the, the hunting scene in Colorado right now is real crazy. And the area he has the tag for, it was just like a real kind of shit show mm-hmm. this year. So we mm-hmm. kind of delayed mm-hmm. that one. But I'm like desperately looking to hunt because that's, I, I really, really want to do that. And Marianne, it's Marianne, right? Marin. Marin, sorry. I got close. I got close. That was pretty good. <laughs> um, Marin is a hunter or non-hunter? Non-hunter. Uh, we both would like to be hunters. She, though, uh, killed her own sheep about a month ago. Yeah. She uh, she did the stun gun. She cut the throat. And then she did the whole butchering process. So she's got a first-hand experience of wow. of taking a life in that way, in a very personal close-up way. Sure, and so sure. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find my, uh, my experience with that thing as well. Well, um, I don't know how much you know about Blood Origins, but um, that's what we do. People yeah. like you that's interested in hunting, we'll make that happen. If it doesn't, and from my perspective, from a Blood Origins perspective, I'm interested in your story, right? I'm interested in this idea and someone like you who could articulate this idea of why you have decided to go from a non-hunter to a hunter, right? Express it and then be in the moment and do it and capture you in that moment and, and capture those emotions that we all know happen. Yeah. In the, and, and I like to call it in that chasm between life and death with it, which is that 100,000th of a second 
in which you break that trigger. And that is you spanning that chasm because you've never done it before until then. You know, Marin has. Um, but um, yeah, so. I would love just, that, man. You just, uh, you just keep us, we'll stay in touch, okay? Because. I think, um, yeah, we might need to make that happen. I think you might be the right dude to do this through. Yeah, and we've got the right uh, cameraman, right? You don't have to be the cameraman this time. You can be oh, on the other side. Oh, that'd be so side. nice. Oh, that'd be so nice. <laughs> We're so doing tell all me, these... are you, are you a, uh, just a Google University filmmaker? A little bit. You know, it's uh, photo and video is something I've been doing since, oh, I don't know, middle school. Just as, it, was, it was always an interest of mine. I did study a little bit in university. That's what I was studying before I... Uh, I dropped out and I've, I've dabbled in so many spheres and professionals um, doing that type of work, but it is, you know, very much just like self-taught, go out, trial and error. Marin as well? Yeah. Yeah. This is her first foray into anything film. So I had to teach her, teach her a lot, but she's, she's doing a great job. Good learner, good teacher. Oh yeah. She's great. She's great. <laughs> I don't know about the teacher. I get, not a, <laughs> but she's picking it up pretty well. So if you were to speak, let me ask this because you must, I'm curious of, of in terms of rhetoric, because rhetoric is everything to us. I'm curious how you approach, given the, the, the history of veganism that you have, and now that you're a mediator, how do you approach rhetoric to a vegan or to someone who says now in, that you were in those shoes, you're just a killer now? Yeah. That's a really good question. And I think ultimately that's like my biggest task. And I've been wondering that for two years, you know, like how do you, because as being an insider to that world, I know how hard it is to see outside that frame of mind, right? Because you're killing something, you're killing something innocent. Like it's, it's, it can be so hard to even fathom that. Right. And so that's, I think there's a gradient. I'm curious. I'm just very curious because there's going to be a gradient of veganism, right? Veganism is this this radical thing that sits off onto the left. But even within it, you're going to have people that like, um, here's a podcast you need to go listen to, Katie Hargreaves out of the UK who went hunting and still is a vegan today and hunts. Oh, wow. Because she believes that the the reason she hunts is to make the health of the deer population better because it's mm. overpopulated. And so the, the action of her killing that animal is to the benefit of the health of the population. That's so, really interesting. So intrinsically, from a vegan perspective, that's what you want. You want healthy animals, right? You don't want to put any suffering on any animals. And this action that needs to happen has to happen. Otherwise, they all suffer. Mm. And I asked her, I said, indirectly, I said, can you eat that meat now? Because you didn't take the animal's life the meat yeah she was like i don't know it's a very that's a, a a tricky question because it does fit ethically with why i did that so i i get what i'm getting to is that it seemed would you would you agree that there's a, a gradient of vegans and that maybe to some there are like you're just not getting anywhere versus others you can maybe Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is how I try to frame it is that, you know, the four, the main reasons why people will choose to be plant-based or, or, or vegan, which all is on the spectrum of, you know, planetary health, like the environment, you know, cows are destroying mm -hmm. the planet, 
human health, meat's just bad for you, animal rights. And the kind of quasi fourth reason why some people do it is like higher vibration spirituality. Eating meat is a lower vibration thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so everybody I've met, and those were essentially all the reasons why I did it. You know, a lot of people believe all those things, right? That's why they do it. It's like, you're, you're killing all the birds with one stone. You're literally the best person ever and you're saving the planet while you do it. Some people, you know, I know a lot of kind of like, I don't know, liberal young people who live in cities who are told and they watch Cowspiracy and they think they don't have any problem with eating meat, but it's the best thing you can do for the environment, right? If you just stop eating meat, we won't have global warming. And so they all kind of exist in that sphere. And so but I've met a lot of- If you stop eating fish, you're going to be saving the fisheries, right? It's like- yeah, fisheries. And then, yeah, exactly. Oh, Freaking seaspiracy. You know, it's like these convenient little answers. So people definitely live on a spectrum. You know, I know people who don't care that I eat meat, but they're like, you know, you should eat less of it because of the environment and blah, 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 blah. And, and I get it. And so I, the way I try to navigate this with people who are still really in that sphere is like, those are all my intentions too. My care for animate, my care for the planet, my care for my health. I have all those intentions too. And I see you like we're on the same team. We really are. I th a little I, bit I, of I really, honesty, like a little yeah. bit of just like I see you. I'm not. Yeah, I'm on the same page as you. Well, and if we think about the intentions of of veganism, like what noble intentions, right? Those are really great intentions. Like, you, there's nothing to point to want to take care of the planet, animals, and yourself. Like, those are fantastic intentions. But I think it's misguided and it's lacking a lot of wisdom and 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 a taste of reality of how the universe functions. Right. I think it's a little naive and I don't, I don't, you know, I don't personally care if people are plant-based or vegan. I have nothing against them. What I still care about is holding myself really accountable and truthful to those, those same intentions. And so my journey to truth and to walking on this planet in a way that I feel comfortable with, and that I feel is correct for me has led me very far away from plant-based and veganism, you know? And so when I meet people who are plant-based, you know, I tell them my story. I tell them my journey with it. I tell them my health story, you know, and I just try to come to some sort of agreement there. It's like, we're, we're on the same team. I think no, almost anybody you talk to on earth, we're all really want the same things. I think we can all agree upon those, like those basic ideas, how we do it. People will argue till the end, till, you know, the earth, mm -hmm. the sun dies, whether meat's healthy for you or not, whether it's right or not, you know, that's, that's an unwinnable argument. You know, they're going to make Seaspiracy three, four and five and every other, Netflix health documentary. Um, but I think it's, it's, yeah, it's just trying to find that common ground with people, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that honesty approach. You know, we use it a lot when we engage with people that are obviously against hand, hunting and they're like, oh, you guys are just, you know, whatever. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, you're right. Let's just get that out the way. Yeah, we've got some rich people that go to Africa and they kill some, some amazing wildlife. Okay, we agree with you. Now, can we get on to the real reason, you know, that the hunting is good for the planet, is good for wildlife, is good for people? The consequences of these actions. And it's funny, yeah, the, the idea of veganism and the idea of hunting is very, very similar in their purpose. We want more wildlife. We want healthier wildlife. We want to sustain wildlife. We want to sustain habitats. I can guarantee you 99% of vegans and, and hunters would agree to those three things. Absolutely. We just differ in the tool of how we get to that objective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, and then for me, the one thing, you know, that 
the one the one point that I do argue on is the death part. Is that it's like you know, well, I'm not killing things. It's like yes, you are. Yes, you are. Please research how industrial food systems work. You know, if you're not eating meat, then you're eating some sort of industrial produced plant food that is committing genocide over you're you're destroying entire landscapes to have mm. nutrient deficient kale or wheat or soy or whatever it is, right? It's you know, we're nobody's getting out of this one clean. We're all participating in this thing. And that's okay. And yeah. in the in the the faster we admit that, the better. Mm. Well, I think also coming back to what we started with in this conversation, this idea of death. Death happens, people. An animal doesn't live forever. You know, it, it's going to die. So, and, and when it dies, it's not this peaceful, I'm going to go to sleep and I'm going to die. It's going to get eaten alive or it's going to get injured in a fight and it's going to be completely, you know, I don't know whether, again, back to whether it's got, you're going to have pain or, or suffering or whatnot. I don't know. But it's not going to be pleasant. And so the, the most ethical way to, to end a life of something that you believe has pain, shows pain, exhibits pain, has feelings, is to end its life as quickly and as humanely as you possibly can. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think what's more important, to, this is what I've thought about lately too, it's like, we focus on the death of the animals, but we don't think about the life they got to live. Like if you're hunting, like, like you do these wild animals, like, like whatever it is, like that animal lived the fullest expression of itself. It, you know, like if you're hunting a deer here in the States, like that deer got to fully deer, like it was mm -hmm. all a deer can mm -hmm. be. And that's like what you hope for it. And then it does have a, a frightful moment and it's out, you know, and it's done, but it was, relatively quick and painless and wasn't eaten alive and it wasn't hunted and it was going to die, you know, well, it and it was hunted technically it was hunted. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yes, exactly. Um, or for, you know, example, this experience we just had in Sweden with these shepherds where these shepherds, you know, they protect these sheep, they get moved to new fresh grass every single day. They're with their herd. And when they start to get old and lose their teeth before they starve to death lights out, lights mm -hmm. out and they they performed their life they got to live their life and fully express it and they were part of an ecosystem and i think there's so much more than just that individual animal it's the entire ecosystem it's the grasses that are growing after it and that are being fed by the manure and the birds that are going to come in and all these the that's just how ecosystems work and i think the more we can be a part of how these ecosystems function in their in their beauty you know i, I just it's hard for me to not see how amazing that is in mm -hmm. my opinion no you know? that's incredible incredible insight man i'm sure we could just go on and on and on in terms of all the stories of the people oh, that yeah. you've met in two years so when do we think death in the garden is going to be done that's the dirty question man i don't know we'll see we got a lot of filming to do a lot of work a lot of posts um still some holes in our story but hopefully I don't want to say maybe maybe okay. a year and a half. We'll see. We'll okay. see. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, certainly keep in touch because we certainly want to fulfill that dream of you becoming a hunter, and I'd love to be able to capture that story. Um, because again, you know, young guy, you know, you look a little hippieish. Nobody can see you. You know, long hair. Uh -huh. um, you're not the typical person who wants to hunt. You know, so that's a story to itself, yeah. and. Um, We'd love to do it. That'd be, that'd be great, man. Thank you. Thank you. We'll definitely yeah. be in touch.
Yeah, for sure. Well, look, man, uh, we need to have you on again, all right, as you journey down a little bit more, six months, 10 months, let's, let's get back on this conversation. Um, Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoy it. You never know when you get people on these podcasts that, you know, you just, you get referred. And when yeah. James told me about your story in his podcast, I was like, uh, you need to introduce me to Jake. Uh, that's great. That's great, man. I'm glad. James is wonderful. He's the, he's the man. Shout out to James Conley. <laughs> exactly. Shout out. Well, thank hey, you, Jake. Coleman. Hey, cheers. Have a good one. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Fun to go with like just full blown redneck on these fish. This is like high tech cane pole fishing right here. From the white sandy beaches to the crystal blue waters, enjoy the best fishing Panama City Beach has to offer during Chasing the Sun. Sundays at 9:30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. On Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep-sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at Ooh. that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.